Welcome to the Biota Podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. For more information on the Biota Podcast, go to biotacast, all one word, dot org. Well, I'd like to welcome back by popular demand, Anton Mikhailov. Anton, wonderful to talk to you once again. We met in Berkeley at a long discussion, a meal and some coffee. It was very nice. We are here once again to dissect the world's ills associated with artificial life. In terms of, since you're, have you done anything on any of your A-Life projects? What's, what's going on with A-Life in your particular part of the world? Uh, I, I have not, <laughs> sadly, but I've had a kind of crazy couple of weeks. But actually, just today, I was planning to, to do some work on one of my um, uh, digital life projects that I have on an Arduino board. So Ooh. maybe I'll do that after the podcast. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So since we last talked, I have set up a wiki for Biotocast, mainly because we were talking about, you know, wouldn't it be useful to have a wiki? I talked to Tim Taylor. He's planning an event at the Artificial Life Conference, but I thought we, we could probably have a wiki of our own. I think we could probably do a wiki. So having yeah, a conversation with you, I seem to recall, we were just talking about a wiki, and I thought, this seems stupid. I could just put together a wiki. So right. <laughs> we have a wiki. For anyone that is interested in getting involved with the A-Life Wiki project, please get in contact with me. My email address is my surname, Bravo Alpha Romeo, Bravo Alpha Lima Echo Tango at gmail.com. Also, if you'd like to have a chat or an interview, if you're doing work in the field of artificial life and you'd like to talk more, that is what this podcast is here for. Getting out as many voices, as many different ideas, gathering together a community of, uh, maybe geographically diverse, but maybe slightly like-minded folks. So if you think this is applicable to you, please do get in contact. Unfortunately, there's no positive news associated with Wikipedia on my side. It doesn't look like they're going to be returning any of the articles. The person who was going to be drafting new articles has not moved forward, and I'm just kind of emotionally drained by this point. So I'm just moving on from that. I did, however, do something really interesting through the week. Part of this whole no Blake thing that I've been experiencing for the past couple of years has been shown out on Instagram, where even though there are folks that are, you know, post photos of simulations and what have you, a lot of the stuff associated with Noble Ape has been drowned out by this opposing party. So I decided through the week to actually run an Instagram promotion. And mm. I recorded some video, just me playing with the Noble Ape simulation, a Windows version. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And I thought, if people are visually receptive to this thing, then they might actually look up what Noble Ape is about. They might actually come to the website. They might even download the software. And I thought, how ridiculous is this idea? Actually putting like, a, I think it was 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds worth of Instagram video, a little bit of voiceover. And I was contacted by an engineering student at the University of uh, Tennessee. Yeah, there you go. So this thing really works. And it's interesting, actually, because you you raised Lenya as a topic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Lenya is all about bringing people into the conversation of artificial life through visual elements as well. Could you talk a little bit about Lenya? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we talked last time about how all these things just sort of pop up. And apparently it's been around forever, like mm-hmm. all artificial life. Um, but yeah, I, I found it accidentally. I think on Twitter, somebody mm. posted, I think I followed the Gecko conference on mm-hmm. Twitter. And I think it was their competition where it won like the evolvability of yeah. 2019 or something. So that's how I found out about it. But, you know, the guy's been doing this work for a while. Like, at least according to his page. But yeah, it's yet another case of finding out about an A-Life project just through the grapevine. I think personally, Twitter and Instagram are probably the best promotion engines at the moment. Um, like Wikipedia is great when you know what you're looking for, but when you're just browsing or just want to hear about new stuff, it's really hard to find. And you have no date, you have no idea. You know, oftentimes I stumble on Wikipedia entries and... I get excited about it and then I realize it's, it was like a nineties project and the, all the websites are dead. And so it's sort of <laughs> like, a, <laughs> it's cool to know about it, but you know, it's nice to know what's current and, and what's yeah. available right now. So I think it's a good idea to put, you know, be more active with uh, Twitter and Instagram for, for Noble Ape. I think that's how a lot of people find stuff. These I, days. I, my general frustration with Twitter is that you don't get retweets. Likes are wonderful, but the way that information propagates on Twitter is through retweets. Right, And I think for folks listening in that want to find Lenya, I'll give you the, the fellow's uh, GitHub username. 
It's C-H-A-K-A-Z-U-L. That's his GitHub username. And Lenya is spelt L-E-N-I-A. So you can find uh, information about Lenya. And to describe it, I interviewed, I can't remember the fellow's name, but I interviewed the creator of Smooth Life. Mm-hmm. And Lenya strikes me as an extension of Smooth Life. I didn't actually read the academic papers. It, it is actually based on Smooth Life, isn't it? That's That was my understanding. It okay. certainly references it in the paper. Cool. cool. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think it's, I, I agree, it's, it's a sort of very pretty version of Smooth Life. I actually, I can't quite tell because, you know, the UI is really beautiful and super dense and completely impenetrable <laughs> as like lots of artificial life. But the, um, I think a lot of the beauty of it actually just comes simply from the color map that he's mm. using. So I think if you just put a color map over smooth life, that would have some, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would be, you know, the connection would be more clear. But actually, I think he's also doing stuff with a color map where it's colored based on the activity that's happening there. So a lot mm. of the color beauty is also coming from the simulation, not just from, you know, pretty uh, gradient ramp. But I don't remember smooth life sustaining quite as many unique organisms, at least not that the creator found or demonstrated. But uh, the thing that struck me with Lenny is he literally had what looked like hundreds. He had this mm-hmm. you know whole phylum of different organisms that looked, in my opinion, quite relatable. That was the thing that really struck me is that with smooth life, it still sort of looks like a smooth glider, whereas these things start to appear like, you know, they got little arms and legs and stuff. And obviously that's just anthropomorphizing it, but it does mean that it's, you know, the structures are more complex, essentially, and they still stick around and they propagate. So there's quite a lot of rich variety of, like, you know, spaceships, I guess is the technical term, in in, in there. It is interesting. I remember in the mid-2000s, someone came out with a new cellular automata. It was prior to Smooth Life, but it was just a cellular automata program. And the journalists that wrote about it didn't know any of the history of, they didn't know about the game of life. They didn't know any of the history of cellular automata. And it was really very curious reading an article from someone who had done, who had no, done no background research, but also had no knowledge of the field describing mm. the brilliant breakthrough of this kind of game of life. <laughs> mm. Effectively similar thing, not like smooth life and certainly not like linear, but mm. it's interesting how people discover cellular automata and mm. how people discover all this stuff. I mean, this is what fascinates me with Instagram is of the people, I think it was something like, it was roughly somewhere between, you know, 700 to 1,000 people actively clicked on the video. Oh, wow. And what was fascinating through that was there were a small number of haters, you know, there were a small number sure. of people like, this is wasting my time or this is causing <laughs> epilepsy. They're, they're just two examples. But right. then a lot of people liked it. And what was fascinating was you could see it, it trending for particular demographics. I think this uh, the visualization of artificial life is a means of bringing people into the field, and certainly absolutely very yeah. strongly with linear. So, yeah, I think, and I mean, I think that's actually why, practically speaking, why Instagram and Twitter are in many ways superior because you know Wikipedia has been traditionally very static content; it's been pictures, and when you look at a picture of even Game of Life, it sort of it doesn't have any of the excitement that that even like a five second gif of it does. Mm. So I think when you see that stuff move, I think as humans, we perceive this liveliness as, as motion. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think unless it's a very intricate, you know, maybe generated creature or something, uh, or something that looks like it was created by a process and therefore the final frame looks, you know, very intentional or something like generative art or whatever, unless it's something like that, Stuff like Lenia, like Lenia in a picture or even Game of Life or even Noble Eight, you know, they, they kind of just look, you know, like dots and colors and things. It doesn't have the, the richness is in the dynamics. It's not in the actual imagery, you know. I don't know. I've got a right behind my head. I have a Noble Eight skateboard that uh, was made, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, maybe five years mm. ago. It's an artifact that I have. But just the imagery of it, I had a long time listener who's based in Pittsburgh, come and visit me maybe five months ago. And he came into my podcasting room and he said, that's a noble ape skateboard. <laughs> Grabbed it. I mean, I think most... Do, do, do you think you, you know that because you've seen the dynamics and you can kind of, you, you get it? Like It's a unique looking thing. I, my perspective is actually that the uniqueness of the 
the visualization. I mean, it, seeing Polyworld, you know, seeing Tierra, seeing all these simulations, the, the blocky, you know, walkers, I, animation is clearly important, but I think they all have particular visual signatures. Now, when you're dealing with the likes of Twitter and Instagram, put, put motion in there without question. But I mm. think there's the aesthetic of artificial life and the way in which various artificial life projects have tailored the aesthetic. I mean, I'm hoping to talk to Gerald Jung in the upcoming, uh, one of the upcoming recordings. And he's someone who's always had a very particular aesthetic, as have, you know, most of the people that I've talked with through, through these uh, both recordings. So I think the aesthetic, certainly for those of us that are already visually, you know, attuned with artificial life, maybe static images, but you're right for drawing in new people. It has to be yeah. moving. It has to be moving. Yeah. I mean, when I look at uh, a game of life image or even I, when I look at an artificial life image, I can kind of pick out because you, you know, the themes, right? They're like, mm. you might find agents and you might find some, you look at the statistics and you might be able to decipher what people are talking about and, mm. and their stats. And you, you know what to look for as a person who is familiar with artificial life. But I think, you know, if, if somebody uh, sort of unfamiliar with the field looks at like a glider, they're not going to see anything. Whereas if it was moving, at least they, they'd see the motion or if they look certainly. at like a spaceship or something. Yeah. Certainly. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, to get new people in, certainly I find it more exciting anyway with motion, even if I can sort of parse a static image. Um, so yeah, having cool moving photos. I mean, one of my ideas when I was talking about the wiki is wouldn't it be cool if we had a, you know, Wikipedia page with all the different projects, but instead of the way wiki Wikipedia has it now where it's just kind of a name per project. I think there is like an artificial life simulator list somewhere on Wikipedia where you can just go and browse all the kind of known projects to Wikipedia. Mm. But it'd be so much cooler if it was kind of, you know, Netflix style, you know, or cover art album, Spotify oh, yeah. style, yeah, you know, because because I, I can think, OK, well, what's that weird thing that was like? Carl Sims swimming things, but wasn't Carl Sims? Like, what was that thing? Like, I know exactly in my mind what, what I'm thinking about is some fish-like thing, but it was, I don't remember who did it. And if I could just scroll down list the picture, like, ah, yeah, that's one. Because like, like you said, all these things have a very distinct visual signature. So it's so much easier to find um, stuff you remember by, by just looking at a picture. So it's just like a really dumb thing. But if we had a page that was kind of cover art of all the active uh, and maybe historical projects actually separated by active and historical would also probably be useful. And then you could just scroll through and just say, Oh, that looks cool. You know, maybe you're in the mood for ecosystems. So you see a little ecosystem when you're like, Oh, I want to click that. Or if it, maybe you're in the mood for evolving creatures. So you, you can usually tell from an image, you know? So I, I think that would just be really neat for people kind of new to the, into the field. Certainly. Certainly. So in the past few weeks, a couple of curious things have happened. My wife needed a Windows. What, I meant to ask you this, actually. What is your primary development platform? I program on Windows, yeah. Okay. I so use Visual Studio, yeah. My wife needed a Windows laptop for some stuff she was working on. I had a Jurassic Windows laptop. She says it's from the 90s, which I use periodically to update and overlay. But this new laptop came into the house. I thought, right, I'm going to get, you know, get, get working on it, grab the source code, build it up, go through some stuff. I have a bunch of sub-projects that I'd like to get working for Windows as well. But I updated the Novolape source for Windows. I've got a version of the Mushroom Boy, which is the urban Novolape simulation, running on Windows now. And it, mm. it kind of was just fun getting back into, mm. you know, it's always worked on Windows in one way or another, but just getting mm. back and getting it easily run on Windows and just coming up and it just being another development platform that I'm working on, you know, committing source code, moving it around, all the good stuff. And it was interesting because the fellow from University of Tennessee was another Windows user, so he immediately grabbed that stuff and got it up and running based on cool. that stuff being there. These are the little things that I like about maintaining, you know, a, a project like Noble Ape is that people can just pick it up based on, you know, their particular interests. Another yeah, thing I've been working on is uh, this Noble Ape IO stuff, and I've now got a, a pretty good client model, pretty good server model, I'm just doing a bunch of optimization currently and getting the documentation ready. The aim is to have a, a documented, nicely running website by June 13th. Yeah, work might have some other ideas. So, <laughs> so I've got bits and pieces that I'm kind of throwing together currently. 
but it is quite fun to have, you know, JSON representations of the simulation, getting this code in place that means other folk can get involved and start playing with Swift and these kind of things. And I have down here the pros and cons of maintaining platforms and fashion, which mm. affects me every WWDC. Every yeah. WWDC. So historically, WWDC 2003 and WWDC 2005, this is Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, those two dates, Apple displayed no blame uh, to the developer community. Um, mm-hmm. I was in the UK, actually, I was in the UK in one time and in Las Vegas the other. This whole thing with the movement to Intel was so under wraps, I got emails from people after WWDC 2005 saying, can we have access to the Intel build for Noble Ape? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't have an Intel build for Noble Ape. They said, we saw it at WWDC. I'm like, hmm, interesting. So yeah. my experience with that has always been rather curious. But the other thing that happens every year is Apple changes a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So the way that I've maintained a Windows version is because Microsoft hasn't changed a bunch of stuff with Windows. No, yeah. they're really they're really good with backwards compatibility. Every few years there are little tweaks, particularly if you want to push the graphics, mm-hmm. and I do through you know slightly non traditional methods. But aside from that, and you know the Windows size, every few years they'll change the various particulars within that. But the code compiles pretty well. Every, oh, they got rid of a bunch of STD IO stuff as well. But, you know, mm. they do do little things, but it's nothing like Apple. I don't have to change the graphic <laughs> system every couple of years. I don't have to rewrite it in, you know, a different language every few years. The reason that Apple used Nobelate was because I spent so much extra time actually getting it to work on a new version of the operating system that they had, you know, Mac OS X, but the carbon porting language. I spent 18 months working late to get that thing wow. in which is after which time Apple picked it up. So it's a very different thing, this whole notion of fashion. And, Uh, you know, a lot of the projects that you know to associate with historical projects that are no longer maintained is because of the cost of fashion, the uh, cost of actually maintaining these things. It was interesting, actually, hearing Tim Taylor talk about JavaScript and that there was an old program that did uh, snowflakes, still uh, written in JavaScript that still works today. Yeah, that's a big strength of JavaScript. I mean... Partly because the web has such a strong financial incentive not to break stuff. Mm. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I mean, and I think Windows traditionally has also been that way. They, they felt like backwards compatibility has been a big, you know, a big selling point of their platforms. Partly why I actually still program on it because although it's really annoying with updates now, at least stuff from a, you know, code perspective doesn't really break. Uh, like you said, I've never really worked with Apple very much. Sounds, I mean, all the things you're saying I've heard, and that's why I've sort of stayed away. But well, it keeps me I, off the streets. I mean, yeah. truth be told, well, yeah, I'm going to be working later this evening on this kind of stuff. So, you know, it, it keeps these podcasts coming out, and uh, yeah. early eccentricity keeps some eccentrics gainfully employed, frustrating other eccentrics. But, yeah, I mean... <laughs> It is what I, it is. I mean, I, I really like the, the new, I mean, the Windows laptops keep getting worse every year and the MacBooks keep kind of <laughs> getting better or staying the same. So mm. I'm really, really tempted to switch to Mac, but then they, you know, they get rid of OpenGL and I'm like, oh God. And then they, you know, just ran, there's just random missing stuff, like you said, especially for graphics or it's, high performance compute. It took me about, well, high performance compute, they just do it in their own particular way, but it took me. The movement to Metal from OpenGL was actually far faster than I assumed it would be. Okay. But I then had to rewrite a lot of my low-level OpenGL stuff to be... Because I've got to have cross-compatibility. I've got to be able to run on Windows still. Right. So I've got to have a low-level renderer, and I've got to maintain that. It'll still run on Windows and all that sort of stuff. But this is going to be a technically heavy podcast anyway. (laughs) I I wanted you to talk a little bit. You discovered through the week the movable feast machine, and I've got to say... David H. Ackley is probably, I mean, he owns YouTube for Artificial Life. He basically has one of the richest, most fascinating YouTube presences with regards to this field. And when I Mm. even posted the notes of this recording, people said, finally, you're getting David H. Ackley on. I'm like, no, actually, we're just (laughs) going to be talking about his work today. Can you talk a little bit about David H. Ackley and also the movable feast machine? Well, I mean, it's another case of just bizarrely discovering work that's been going on for years. Mm. And what's interesting is I actually saw his video, you know, by the by, like just scrolling through YouTube. 
I didn't realize he had such a big presence, but I guess, oh, yeah. again, it's the same thing as always that came across one of his videos. But I think it was the video where he shows kind of a traditional artificial life ecosystem uh, with like predator and prey. And I thought, oh, this is kind of a neat simulation. And he was explaining artificial life, but it was kind of the stuff I already knew. Essentially, mm. I thought his video was cool and the way that he presented it was neat. But that's like the only thing I saw. And that was several years ago. And then last week, uh, my friend Mark, who who's in Oakland, he makes this game called Vilmonic, which is an artificial life sim. He was talking to me and he was, um, he mentioned movable feast. I was like, mm. movable feast? What, what, what does that name mean? And so he showed me, uh, one of his videos. I was like, I know this guy. And so I started <laughs> watching the videos and that work is far more interesting than, than the kind of A life intros that he posted, which must have been for his class or something. But, uh, yeah, it was maybe I just skimped past it, but the whole idea of, um, you know, having, kind of a cellular automata like thing, but that also can update other cells and the whole thing scales indefinitely. It's hard to explain in a few words. If people are interested, probably just go check it out because he's got like a really good presentation about it. But the, the bizarre thing is I read his paper on the distributed language, which was like Ulam is his language for programming these um, cellular automata. I read his paper like two years ago. I read, I saw his video three years ago. <laughs> Never put the two and two together <laughs> mm. because the paper doesn't have his picture and the videos often don't mention the paper. Mm. And then only now I kind of have sort of pieced his presence together. So that, that was kind of my history. It's yet another slow discovery of artificial life. I, I, I wish there were, there's got to be a pattern to why this is such a difficult thing to piece together. But anyway, I found it really interesting just because um, he just really embraced this idea of things being non-deterministic and fully parallel and just totally updates all the cells in separate time scales and stuff. And, um, yeah, I'm just watching a lot of his videos and it's especially impressive how he's able to build these structures that kind of self assemble in parallel without any real synchronization that's explicit anyway. And, uh, and then when sort of like pokes at them and wrecks them and they just kind of re reform and re self assemble. So I thought it was just really interesting. So you, you've, you've known about this for a while then, presumably? So what's interesting is you mentioned Oolong, and when I read his principles, it's very similar to Erlang, which is mm. Joe Armstrong's highly distributed programming language. Joe yep. Armstrong recently passed away. I actually knew Joe Armstrong. Oh. Spent a bit of time with him. He came and talked at uh, my work, mainly for recruiting purposes, but I knew him as a person independent of a language it was very curious, but th the principles are all relatively fundamental. I mean, you mm -hmm. want something that can run, you want something that can run in a distributed fashion. You don't want, you know, small changes that are happening in one place rapidly affecting changes that are happening in other places. So the, the rules for this thing read very much like most artificial life simulators that have started exploring this area. I think the, mm -hmm. The profound nature of what he's done is he's spelt it out for a different audience. I mean, mm. the audience for his stuff associated with the movable feast is he acknowledges is a different body of work than his body of work associated with artificial life. It's like creating mm. the subsystem that can run the artificial life. And mm. I think what fascinates me with his approach is firstly, he has provided such a rich just vast quantity of videos that, as you say, are sticky, kind of people discover, you know, if you're interested in this area, you know about his work because he's so omnipresent on YouTube. And although you say a lot of it appears like it's for introductory students, I think actually a lot of it is just for people that have never heard about this field, which unfortunately mm. is a majority of the world. And mm. what he has done is he has put these videos in various places as people will search and what have you, just to instigate, very similar to what we were discussing associated with visual imagery, just to instigate thinking people to mm. get involved with this thing. So I similarly, you know, I watch the stuff that's like, oh, yeah, he's explaining this or this or this, but I'm not the audience for his material, right? It's mm. actually a very different and very diverse audience, which I think he is bringing people in and what's interesting, actually, is I feel in many regards, I feel a kindred spirit in him because I feel he is a similar fringe dweller. 
<laughs> in some regard. <laughs> but the stuff that he does is really outstanding. And yes, I will have to at some stage approach him about coming on this recording and, and breaking down some of these ideas. Yeah, I think last time you talked about how Noble Ape was paralyzed. And one of the reasons that kind of I had the idea to talk about it on the podcast was I was curious uh, how similar it is to how you distribute the simulation across the apes, whether it's similar to how he distributes his simulation across the agents. So Noble Ape has been written in a few different ways with a few different flavors of parallelism, which I will say four times because it's a Friday night. And then I will not say it again. But the beauty of parallelism is that it embodies so many different disciplines in terms of its approach. And I mean, the way I started was with non-blocking synchronization and threat mm -hmm. models that have non-blocking synchronization. For folks who aren't familiar with non-blocking synchronization, it just means you need to be disciplined about where you read and write data from. And it means that you're never, there's never a mismatch. You're never writing data to the same place or well, you can read data from the same place without any trouble. But you have all these rules that you apply, which stops thread lock and all the kind of downsides of threading. And once you install those practices, that provides a particular form of parallelism, which is what I would say entry-level parallelism. Apple didn't really do that explicitly. They had their own threading model, but they were very particular about vector processing. And for folks listening in, vector processing is... In most modern processes, you've got many, 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 many additional bytes worth of data that you can add, multiply to whatever you want. If you're dealing with small amounts of, of a couple of bytes worth of information and you have, you know, 16 of them, you can do a wide variety of mathematical computations in uh, parallel faster. So you create these kind of pipe, these vector pipelines of mathematical processing, which requires you to rewrite some of the mathematical logic, there are certain bottlenecks and things that you want to avoid. Apple did yeah, that. pain in the ass. Well, you know, it's a thing, right? Yeah, it's a thing. Now, when Intel picked up the Noble Ape source code, they were big on atomic processing. And what atomic processing is, is taking uh, kind of blocks of computation and making them the units that you're, you know, distributing amongst multiple processes. So again, you have to rewrite the mathematics, similar to vector processing, but you're now doing it with these atomic processes. But finally, the, the breakthrough that I had in about 2012 was with regards to functional programming. And mm. functional programming for me became a religion for, in fact, when I get off this call, I'm going to be dealing with functional programming with my professional life. But functional programming for me just seemed like this is what I've been doing all this time with Noble Ape. Mm. I've been dealing with a vast quantity of Noble Apes. They're all doing similar things in the same time cycle on shared data and the way in which you write functional programming is you just consider what one of these entities within all these loops looks like. And then the loops basically, you know, write themselves into map functions or, you know, how, whatever way you're moving the data around. Sometimes you join them. Sometimes you just take individual components, but most of the time you're dealing with this happens at this time cycle, write this in a very simple way that can then be distributed very easily. And this gives you Java, gives you Groovy, it gives you all the modern, you know, languages. Even now you see in Swift and a, a variety of other languages have functional programming uh, elements to them, which make basically loop unwrapping, loop civilization, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. That, to me, was such a breakthrough with Noble Ape. And I rewrote, I wrote a functional core, and I rewrote the simulation to use that now. Mm. However, seven years on, it probably eliminates a good number of the people that want to pick it up. So I'm, I'm really, I'm moving back away a little bit from functional programming in the extreme that I took it. And I'm now, it's clearly there, but it's less of a, I, I kind of have disguised it a little bit. So people can mm -hmm. still look at the simulation and, and still read it because. Some of the elements of functional programming really require you to know about functional programming. And I felt that was the obstacle that although in my professional life, clearly I was getting obsessed with the stuff. Okay. And we had a, I mean, it typically takes a very particular like architect evangelist type to get functional programming well understood. And thankfully I knew a gentleman like that who speaks at all the JavaScript conferences and, you know, is big on this thing. He's, I don't know where he is now. He might be at Facebook now, but you know, he's, he's done the tour Microsoft 
you know, all of, all these kind of companies. So, yeah, it is an interesting thing, the notion of parallelism. And what it gets you is an ability to write code that is just far more efficient. You can get so much speed and so much interesting stuff without waiting for a long period of time for, you know, data to churn. But it does take a certain degree of discipline. And each one of these things, as I've described them, required me to rewrite Noble Ape in certain areas. I mean, the overarching thing is still, you know, monkeys moving around, getting information, this kind of stuff. But in the individual loops, I mean, moving to functional programming, for example, required breaking down the simulation into maybe seven different loop cycles just based on the kind of data that was being mm-hmm. interacted mm-hmm. with. Um, but I think it's really important that we embrace these new methods, particularly, I don't know, it just, I think it brings a different a different generation of thinkers and doers, hopefully, into the conversation. But as I found with the engineering student from University of, of Tennessee, these aren't, you know, you've got to be really lucky to find universities that teach these things. They really become yeah. a part of an applied toolkit that people pick up professionally if they're, you know, in software engineering. Well, I mean, functional programming right now, it's definitely got its really popular niche with stuff like Haskell, but that's mm-hmm. like, you know, full tilt, really, really functional. You can't step out of that. I actually, I think I agree with you that for many years, I found that the best reusable code is stuff like just plain old C functions that don't have side effects and you know, you can get really far with that without having to bring in any of the monads or any of the more sophisticated functional stuff, like just standard MapReduce over, over like C functions. It's funny, the game that I worked on, uh, Dreams for PlayStation 4, uh, you know, right now, I don't know if you're familiar, but like right now, the, the most common paradigm for game programming is this thing called entity component system where you split your data into different functions in different ways and I don't know. I won't, I won't go into describing it, but anyway, we kind of took a weird stab with, with our game and because we have all these entities that needed to do different things. And we wrote it, I think it sounds like maybe Noble Ape one style where we literally had the previous game state, like the entire memory of the game. And then we had a function that just rolled over that entire state and created a new state of the game. And it sounds extremely inefficient, but in practice, because of the way stuff lays out in cache, it actually turns out to be faster than doing more sophisticated things and then jumping around memory all the time. So that was an interesting kind of thing. So when you say that your first one was kind of lock-free, am I understanding, is that, by the way, the reason I'm trying to drill this technically is because I have a more high-level question afterwards about how this influences the actual artificial life. So hopefully the non-technical people (laughs) can bear for a second, because I think there's actually really interesting patterns that fall out of these decisions and what you can do and what kind of interactions become possible or easy or hard. But like, so the original one, am I correct to say that it's basically you had some read-only state and then you would run updates over it and then create the next state? Is that roughly what you're talking about? So the original Noble Ape was very different, but in terms of embracing parallelism, the, the difficulty is that Apple pushed a particular flavor early, but from my perspective, the non-blocking synchronization was the first implementation of Noble 8 that was in thread scalable. And I didn't have uh-huh. to worry about all the stuff that I had to worry about in Apple's particular implementation. Yeah. It also meant that I could get, I got a couple of really interesting developers from Motorola and one other place, I want to say Siemens, but it might've been, that just immediately knew what I was doing. And uh-huh. they came to the code and were able to rewrite sections of the code with a, just a freedom and professionalism that I thought was amazing at the time. This would have probably only been about eight years ago, actually. But yeah, so I immediately kind of got the rewards from doing that implementation. The vector processing stuff was actually earlier. I've done it slightly out of order. But the non-blocking synchronization led itself really into Intel's atomic processing, although I don't maintain any of that Intel code because their stuff was all about new chipsets, right? They were just yeah. testing new chipsets with Noble 8. So it was all very esoteric and they didn't really care about having, you know, 25 or, you know, 50 threads running at the time. They were interested in their particular processor. So, yeah, I, I guess I've gone through a few different styles through this. I wanted to say, in essence, preempting your next question, I think 
the resiliency of the ideas in artificial life should transcend the kinds of methods of programming that you're going to utilize. What I found particularly with the functional programming was that it was the first time I had a natural description of what I was trying to do. I'm trying to simulate a time cycle. I'm trying to simulate this stuff within a time cycle. And if I break that down and just appreciate that I have all these entities running very similarly, I mean, obviously they've got different data, they're making different reactions, but basically running the same kind of program just vastly in parallel. The reason I bring that up is because that's not how Movable Feast works. Movable Feast is not simulating a single time cycle. In fact, as far as I understand, there's no notion of a time cycle for the entire board or system chip. And that's that's kind of what makes it work at endless distances, because nothing is ever really synchronizing over the entire space. Oh, um, let me make that bit clear. Time here has a beautiful relativity associated with it as well. So... What I'm moving to more now is the notion of like amoeba-like tribes where you do have groups of, based on proximity, you have groups of apes that are simulatable independently. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the movable feast concept. These entities are, in his case, very simple. So they can be, as you say, time independent. But in my case, there is still, I have to be halfway in between. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to have some... Lo- and I think, I mean, he describes localized time, right? In terms of he, relative effect. He, in his uh, simulation, from what I understand, he, the only constraint is that when an entity is updating, its neighborhood is not updating. Mm. And that neighborhood is just like four, four cells wide. So it's fairly, fairly narrow still. Yes. So I think, I imagine he's got some sort of scheduler that gives things uh, time to run when they're not overlapping. But I think the reason, I mean, I totally agree with you on the one hand, that yes, the, the principles of A-Life should transcend the model and the model can just kind of be changed. But, but what's interesting about the movable feast is it forces you to program, you know, in this way that is kind of time, like you need to program in a way that doesn't assume that what you're doing might happen before somebody else. So it, it does change, I think, the mental model about uh, of, of how these things are actually programmed. Maybe that's a programming detail, but I'm not so sure. It feels it feels like it might become somewhat fundamental to design your stuff to, to run kind of uh, robustly, as I guess you would call it, like always be looking out for things that went wrong. Because if you build that in from first principles, well, then when things do go wrong, like when you get zapped with radiation or whatever, then you can actually recover from it. And that's quite a cool lifelike property, in my opinion. So I'm kind of on the fence. I, I, I used to be very much in the camp of, you know, let's just simulate a time step and make sure that everything is done, you know, either in a consistent order or in a randomized order or whatever. But this notion of doing things in no particular order is, uh, I don't know, it, it was a new idea for me. So that's, that's kind of why I was trying to lead down that path. Like, do you think that's important or do you think that's just a technical detail? Well, in the example where you randomize the order, doesn't that make it where there is no particular, I mean, that's, that seems to be another thing again, right? That is where there's no particular hierarchy of order through your randomization. Right. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think so. I think that's true. It's just it's a uh, it in the particular way he does it. He sort of I think it's just uh, easier to then schedule because he's not forcing it to be random. He's just kind of like letting the parallelism do it, as far as I understand. But yeah, no, I think you're right. It's like it that's similar question. Should things just be always? Not quite, I guess, because so when I've done parallel stuff, there's always this question, even when you, so if you do it functionally, it sounds like you have something like seven passes. And presumably that's because like the easiest case to understand is two apes try to enter the same location. And in a fully parallel way, if you want it to be, you know, fully functional, you, you can't create a move. Presumably you make some kind of move request or something and then resolve it in a future step. Is that, does that sound right? Or do you have a different way of doing this? So proximity isn't just a function of space. It's also a function of psychology. Mm-hmm. So the notion that one ape would want to move into, would want to cohabit, already has parameters attached to it, which make it probabilistically less likely than just if they were, I don't know, drunken, drunken, <laughs> you know, punters or whatever, wandering space. So there is that component to it as well. The notion of cohabitation and these kind of things is is a programmatic one 
as much, well, sorry, as a, I think I've described it. I mean, it's basically not just that they're wandering aimlessly in random different directions. They make very purposeful choices about if they're going to go near or stay at a distance from another entity. Uh, that being said, obviously, there are mistakes and a wide variety of other things that can create cohabitation. But you're also dealing with the issue of space is really critical in these kind of simulations. If you have, on most memory constraints, you have about 200 noble apes at most in a simulation. Mm-hmm. You'll typically have in the 80 to 90 apes. If you have particularly plentiful food and other things, you know, you might get into the hundreds, but usually no more than about 200. In fact, um, I have a fellow in Germany who runs noble ape for, you know, years, quite literally, and provides me mm. back all this curious all these curious statistics associated with, you know, what happens in the simulation space. You're dealing with a space that is in the order of about, um, uh, let's just say 120 kilometers by 120 kilometers. Uh So you're dealing with a very large space. It's actually probably larger than that now. And you then, so you have at most 90, say, entities in this huge space. I saw a film recently about Neanderthals, which was really beautiful. I wish I could remember its name. It's Ice something. Maybe Ice Man is what it's mm. called. It's just an absolutely beautiful film. I mean, obviously, you know, it's got all the standard plot elements, you know, the sex and lots of violence and this kind of stuff. But what I found beautiful about it is that there's just long periods where this, you know, Neanderthal is wandering around and then he sees other Neanderthals and sometimes they fire arrows at him. Sometimes they throw spears at him. But there's always this distance and the mm. land is so vast. So you're dealing with a population circumstance with Noble Ape where you'd never have, you know, the likelihood of apes accidentally wandering into the same space is, is very rare. I see. Now, I see. more interestingly, in the Mushroom Boy, I'm confining it to two city blocks in some cases with a similar number of apes there. That is more interesting because they're dealing with, you know, right angles and a bunch of other stuff that they don't have to deal with in Noble Ape. That right. is a podcast in and of itself. But yeah, in general, the likelihood of noble apes cohabiting without distinct purpose is very, very unlikely. So I don't have the same kind of problems I that see. I would have if yeah. it was a cellular automata simulation. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm coming at it from trying to simulate these bees, and I had 10,000 bees stuck into like a grid that was 200 by 200. So they're like forced to cohabitate yes. all the time. So when I was trying to paralyze it, it was just a total interlock nightmare. Um, that's kind of the, the common case is that there's two per grid and often three or more are trying to enter the same grid and somebody has to get bumped out. So it was like the condition of collision was almost constant. I mean, you imagine a hive inside. It's like a half a quarter meter, you know, space and each bee is like two centimeters. So it's just mm. like a total nightmare. So I see. So. Okay, well, I'll I'll have a ponder. I was interested in this lock-free. Actually, last week um, I did. For, I forgot. I did attempt a lock-free experiment where I was trying to do something like inspired by movable feast. I thought, oh, maybe I can get my bees to run in parallel. And I tried to do like a lock-free version where each bee kind of looked around and tried to essentially claim cells iteratively, but I, I couldn't get it to work out i was trying to do it on the bus and stuff and ran out of time but yeah i'm super interested in how you could do like dense agent simulations and what are the principles to do it without having to you know do the standard thread locking is there some way of using atomics um, so noble warfare which is probably slightly closer to this does have a board underneath it Mm -hmm. and when i wrote it i was in the uk and i was working with a fellow who had worked with Nintendo and a bunch of other companies. And we were talking about it just at lunch as you do. And he said, just put a board underneath it. Use like, you know, standard checkers board rules. And mm. that way you can resolve that you don't, I mean, obviously there's, there are cases where the cavalry overrun the infantry and you've got to be able to cope with those kind of cases, but it actually really simplified the process. And that is a, an independent like it is a declarative movement. There's a problem with the declared movement situation, um, which is what yeah. you describe associated with the resolution. I think that's probably the closest experience I've had to what you're describing, but that ultimately, I mean, that resolves itself. It has to. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the way to do it. The other interesting thing, I've, I, you know, my work and a lot of the stuff that I do professionally 
focuses around using GPUs, and that's you know a massively parallel system. So I'm always curious about how to, because I've seen a couple of um, cellular automata simulations on GPUs, and obviously mm. they run stupidly fast, mm. and it's kind of fascinating to watch them. But I would love to see something like something a bit more sophisticated, like Movable Feast running on a GPU. That would be really fun just to see it run at a fast rate. And with GPUs, the name of the game is totally Atomics because you just can't synchronize. Otherwise, it just kills your performance. <laughs> so the idea of using maybe, I don't know. Anyway, it's, that's a, <laughs> a deep discussion. But have you thought about doing, well, I guess you don't, you don't need to do GPU stuff for Noble 8. Well, it's 200 apes. Well, but <laughs> it was interesting, actually, when Apple stopped using Noble 8 in about, I don't know, 2009, maybe? Around that time mm. frame, they said, You've got to appreciate there were maybe four major rewrites I had to do to keep Apple happy. Yeah. <laughs> including like really profound ones where I was literally, I was living in Las Vegas at the time. You can't imagine that. I mean, you've obviously had some experience of this, but I was working in my evenings for this multi-billion dollar company to make their stuff look better. And I was walking home uh, as one does in the desert through sandstorms. And I was just thinking to myself, why am I redoing this thing yet again for this situation, which is so, and then, you know, I got my current job and primarily based on my relationship with, with the, the particular fruit factory. And I thought to myself, okay, maybe, maybe I'm getting something back from this relationship at this stage. But at the <laughs> time, all these rewrites and the last rewrite, which I didn't do, was rewriting Noble 8 for the particular flavor of GPU processing that they had at the time. Mm. And so I did have that option. It would have been so... And now even they don't use the same... They don't use the same thing. So right. I would have had to have maintained it. There's a lot yeah, of fascinating yeah. stuff going on currently. I mean, I don't want to disparage the work that the Fruit Factory is doing because, I mean, some of their ML stuff now on device ML and things like that, I'm thinking... You know, maybe I can get something with Noble 8 through that and get something interesting out of that. And I certainly know the guy that, you know, kind of baptized TensorFlow and did all that stuff as well. So, I mean, there are all these possibilities in the future, but the GPU, for me, strikes me as actually an ideal place for particular kinds. I mean, obviously, cellular automata is a no-brainer. But for particular kinds of artificial life simulation, a lot of the stuff that's offered with GPU programming now, I don't know, it just seems really interesting to me. So never yeah, say never. Yeah. yeah, I would. I mean, I really would not recommend doing it on TensorFlow or any kind of edge processors from my experience because I've used them. They're not bad. They're great for ML, but they lack just random stuff that you would expect from a general processor. Like one of the reasons I got quite excited about GPUs like the last couple of years is, is particularly on the PlayStation 4, but now on consumer PCs it's really settled down into a really nice general processor with, with OpenGL Compute or even CUDA. Hmm. So that was like really sad to see Apple drop OpenGL because it would have been really nice. Well, actually, they never even did compute, which mm. was annoying. But if there was compute, on, you know, because there's compute on Linux, on Windows, and would have been nice if it was on Mac because they, it actually got to a point where the GPU didn't feel super funky, like where... You had to put your data into some weird texture and read it out and then swizzle it. Like, it just worked for a bit. You could just define a C struct and get the data in, and you had this amazingly powerful supercomputer. So it was looking really good for a, for a bit. Um, and it was actually a big pleasure to program. Like, it, it was very much like you said, um, you need to have some rules and you need to know how to synchronize and barrier and use atomics and stuff. But once you, you got a huge reward, I mean, 4,000 threads in parallel and insane memory speeds. Because, I mean, one of the things people forget is that on a GPU, your memory bandwidth is like, on a, on a modern GPU, is nearly 300 gigabytes per second. Mm. And on a CPU, it's like 30. Mm. So just in raw memory bandwidth, the amount of stuff you can crunch is insane. And they're getting, just this last year, if you would get a really high-end uh, GPU, like NVIDIA Titan or something, they're extremely good at just handling really terrible code. So just to give an example, I've written uh, ray tracers entirely on the GPU without any real real smarts, just writing standard C code. And it runs at like frame rate, you know, 60 frames, 30 frames per second. So you can really throw really bad code at the GPUs now. It's not like five or 10 years ago where you had to just be really careful about, you know, your cycle count and all this stuff. You could just throw 
bad code and get 4,000 threads churning on it. You can get better if you write better code, but you don't have to, which is exciting because when you're prototyping, you know, you don't want to count your registers and all this stuff. So they've just gotten much more even in their performance, which made them really great for prototyping. You can hot load all your code. So anyway, it's quite cool, but I'm looking, I guess, maybe there's a meta question. I'm looking for a good, somewhat general purpose model of simulating artificial life on a GPU. Mm. That is, um, you know, it would be cool to figure out what can you do without locking or locking minimally. And within those constraints, write something interesting, you know, like maybe like movable feast or maybe some, you know, something different and then play with that. Cause if, if we could make a interesting programmable model for that, you can do some really nice simulations, I think. And it's, fun for people to play with. One thing that's nice about GPU code is uh, people can tweak it like in real time because it's compiled it or, you know, it's compiled on the fly kind of thing. So it's, it's another way of pe- to, for people to kind of contribute even small snippets. Like you said, you can just show a function, you know, you can imagine writing some kind of harness on the GPU that runs the simulation, but then the one or two functions that actually do the interesting stuff you can open up for people to just muck around with. Um, so people have done that for cellular, you know, just standard cellular automata stuff. Like in particular, there's an interesting YouTube channel where the guy's doing very wide neighborhood cellular automata. I don't know if you've, maybe you've come across it. He's got like hundreds of videos. It's another one of these treasure troves, but he's doing these, um, counting rule cellular automatas, which is just same as game of life, but you just count up more cells. Uh, but he's doing neighborhoods of like 40, you know, for, radius 40, radius 20 like a really long range and they get crazy interesting behavior. So, and it runs super fast and it's interesting to experiment with. So I just wish you could do something that's just not a standard cellular automata where you read the previous frame and then do the next frame. I wish it was a bit more flexible. So, Anton, I think you've offered a lot of food for thought for our listeners. I hope <laughs> I've, I've supplied a few morsels as well. And uh, yeah, it's been really fun having a chance to chat with you this evening about this stuff. I did implement Metal for Noble Ape, and I did look at the GPU stuff offered through Metal. But uh, yeah, it is interesting, the just the number of possibilities that are out there currently. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, you likewise. So folks listening in, if you too would like to participate in one of these bio podcasts, please get in contact with me, barbelay at gmail.com. And hopefully Anton and I will have more stuff to talk about in a, a similar length of time. My hope is that we'll be able to get Gerald Jung back into the conversation. I did contact Steve Grant. He says he's got nothing to discuss at this stage, but he'd like <laughs> to catch up in the future. So my hope is that we'll get Steve Grant on in a recording too. Plus also, I'm thinking of uh, emailing the Artificial Life mailing list, the Academic Artificial Life mailing list, to see if I can encourage some conversees and maybe even getting on David H. Ackley himself to talk a little bit. So all this potential in the future. Thank you very much again, Anton, for the chance to chat this evening. Thank you.